be said about the hot bad boy. Now, fair disclosure, if you look up, so back before I was a librarian, I, I debated for a second um, wanting to work for the FBI. And oh, I'm not okay. as a librarian, fun fact, but I did look into like the OCTF and all of that. And I was really excited about it because as a kid, I fell in love with The Godfather because my dad made me watch it. And I thought this will be great because I grew up in the heyday of when the mob was really like, the five families were doing their thing in New York and the yeah. FBI was just finally getting them. Uh, I thought this would be awesome. They're not as hot as um, as we like to think they are. Like, I mean, that's really one in a million shot of like the real hot guy. Um, definitely not the ones here. For, no offense to any of the ones in prison who may love your podcast, but just not hot. <laughs> I was an attending author at the Fall in Love New England conference and sat in on romance author Mia Michelle's talk about writing BDSM and romance. I loved it so much that I sat in on a second panel she did the following day. Mia is whip smart and hilarious and not only writes about the BDSM lifestyle, but she also lives it. And I knew I had to have her on this podcast. And she said yes. For those that don't know Mia, I am thrilled to introduce her. For those that do, I hope you get more insight into what makes her brilliant writer brain tick and have some laughs along with us. Before we get to the interview, just a quick word from an affiliate. If you're an author, a book blogger, or do anything that requires an online presence to build a, for lack of a better word, brand, it's freaking hard. I get it. I knew I needed help figuring out a social strategy, and that's where a social curator came in. As a member of Social Curator, I have access to Jasmine Starr's approachable social strategies that are not overwhelming. Plus, there's a plethora of really gorgeous, bespoke images to choose from. So handy if you don't have access to stock pics or also like they're kind of expensive, I'm, especially if you need to use a lot of them. Um, plus, with their latest update, they just added a draft section. It's an area for you to work on your social posts and keep them all in one place. You tag them by the date that they're supposed to post. There's even a way to archive. It's a great organizational tool, especially for people like me who are organizationally challenged. I love how Social Curator keeps innovating to make social media easier for all of us. And I am an affiliate, so if you want to check it out, visit lgreco.rocks forward slash social to give it a whirl. Doing so through that link helps support this podcast. That's E-L-L-E-G-R-E-C-O dot rocks forward slash social. Now let's get to the interview. Mia Michelle is the pen name of a suburban housewife and homeschooler. A Nashville native, her nonfiction work on yoga, religion, and alternative choices has been featured in the U.S. and Europe. She enjoys running and is an avid racer, having participated in numerous 5Ks, half marathons, and marathons. In her spare time, she teaches yoga and enjoys nature walks with her children. She's a former librarian and lives in southeastern Pennsylvania with her family. Welcome, Mia, to Steam Scenes. Thank you so much for having me. I had to practice your first line for a few times because it, the, like you calling yourself a housewife just kept making me laugh. 
I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I don't know. if They call for my like big skirts with aprons. And (laughs) so fun fact, I do have some of those like 50s, 40s style dresses with the hoop skirt. And when I'm feeling especially housewifey, I'll put those on with sandals and get my apron and like walk around and cook. That's perfect. Cause I was like picturing like the big, like the hair and the bouffant and then maybe like a <laughs> cigarette and a martini glass too, you know, like that sort of quintessential fifties like house. I was like, this is great. And, um, and also, okay. So background for listeners, how we met was at the fall in love, new England conference this past October. Was it October? It feels like mm-hmm. a million years ago. Oh my God. Um, it was my very first conference So I was absolutely terrified, but it turned out to be really great. And so I happened to, you're, they they do these, I don't know, panels or, or like workshops, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. during these conferences, some conferences do them, some conferences don't, um, this one, they did it and you were doing talks on BDSM. And I was like, I want to sit in that room. Um, So I went in and I was like, so impressed with everything that you were saying. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Like I was like, oh my God, she has such smart things to say. And, and this is so great. And I want to talk to her. And then it seriously took me like a day to like work up the courage to like go and be like, oh, my podcast. (laughs) You are now. I was fangirling so hard. (laughs) And then I feel really awful because I got home and I am a mess. My housewifing is leaves some to be desired. So I had all of my conference stuff and my four-year-old decided that that was an outstanding spot for her juice cup. And (laughs) so I go and like, I'm cleaning stuff out and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And it's juice. Like all over all my paperwork that I brought back from the conference, including your contact information. And I'm like, (laughs) so I'm sorry that it took me so long to reach out. (laughs) It's okay. I was going to reach out, but I know I follow you on social media. I knew you got really busy. So I was like, I'm going to give her some breathing room. I don't want to harass her. (laughs) But we found each other and here we are. Yay. Yay. So um, my God, I feel like I have so many things to talk to you about. So I just want to start by saying while we were at the conference, I bought fault line. And so I was reading it and I bought like the, the omnibus edition. So I, I want to talk about this for a second because, okay, first of all, that sucker is a doorstop and a half. That is huge. Can you tell me how many it is. You, can, is? you can put it in your purse and like use it to knock out muggers. It is really such great. a weapon. Oh my God. How many, how many words is that? What is that word? Um, 279,000 something. Yeah, it was 827 pages. And that's the max number you can have bound (laughs) as a paperback. So it should have been like nine something. And there was a lot of funky formatting that went on to make that come down to the 827 max. (laughs) Okay, I was kind of a little bit like this formatting is unusual. And now I know why. Oh man. Yeah. I really, it was really important to me not to have it broken into multiple pieces. I am not a person who likes to read cliffhangers and I don't particularly care for books that clearly could have been one, but we divide them up into multiple ones. I did that once and 
I just, I really hated it. And the second that they all threw her out, it initially, like it right away got pulled and put as one book because it all goes together. It's supposed to be one book. Right. Um, so I had really debated on having these fault lines told in two, two very distinct point of views. Right. And then you kind of get like this more back and forth at the end. I debated doing three and I just couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I well, I kind of really appreciate the, the fact that you did do it because what, what that said to me is you need to read this all together and you need to read these two point of views. And I'm still only on like that first, the first point of view, but like, I'm a very slow reader. Um, but when I was reading your scenes that you sent that you had that you told me to to read and I was like and I jumped from her point from Lexi's point of view to oh my god Giovanni yes so bad with names point of view I was like oh I see why I see why she did this because reading through it I'm like this guy's an ass what is she doing you know (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to tell you since you're not in his point yet every single person I know Every single one hates his guts at chapter 16. So you have to tell me, like, no matter when you finish it, text me, call me something and tell me what you think of him. Because even my husband who loved him and is 100% team Giovanni the whole way, probably because he's really, they're based, he's based off of, the, the, the wolf is based off of the original wolf. Um, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> he him. Everything he does, even when he read through her point of view, he's like, oh, you know, she's just not giving him the benefit of the doubt, blah, blah, blah. Chapter 16, even he's like, man, this guy's a dick. Yeah. Um, but by, by 17, he's in love with him again. Um, but every single person has hated him. And I actually had one person who's like, he's such an asshole. I will never, ever like him. And even her, you know, she turned by the end too. So you have to tell me what you think of him going into chapter 17, which is where his point of view starts. Okay. Well, okay. Here's the thing. You're playing a very dangerous game, right? <laughs> I mean, with readers in terms of what you're doing here, because you are crafting that sort of like, what happens if you're just like, I can't get, I can't, you know, chapter 16 happens. He is the ultimate douchebag and you're like I can't even I can't I can't go on and like like that's that's balls man that's so nervy I love that you did that it just it's so funny because when I was actually working on another project and every single time I left the office my husband's like man you clearly don't want to be working on this project because you're such a bitch when you come out like it's really not working well for you. Why don't you work on something else and put this one to the side for a second? And so I remember one day I'm sitting in there and I'm like, you know what? This is a depressing as hell pop project. I'm going to stop for a minute. And I'm, who's up there? Who wants to chat? And Giovanni starts talking. And yet when the book starts writing, it's her perspective. Right. And so I didn't have the benefit of any of him until I got closer to the, the end of her her point of view, you know, 14, 15 ish. Um, But it was something that I had storyboarded out in like 2012. It it was sitting in my computer as a, like there was a file of like, Hey, write this someday. Um, But I had no names. I had no real background, just this real basic story. And then it, it wrote itself in a couple of weeks. Wow. 
all 300,000 words. Yeah, which is psycho. Like I got up and I worked from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. That was that was my window. And I wrote that and got the first draft to the editor in about three months. That's insane. I've ne now, funny enough, the book right before that took three years and it's only 180,000 words. You like epics. I do. <laughs> I have a couple of like shorter ones, but they're more like the fun stuff. So I'm real cerebral and I don't think that that makes me really popular because there's like, for, for example, Fallen's got a lot of psych in it. And if you don't like reading about why people do the things they do, then you're not going to enjoy it. And they all, the one before it was like this dystopian. I mean, there's a love story, so I guess it's romance, but it's not really, it's more romantic fiction than it was okay. romance. Okay. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I can't figure out what I like to write. So I just write it a bunch. Okay. And I like, I like to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's totally. Hey, look, keep writing what you're writing because it's clearly working. So, does that mean then Faultline is your first mafia story? Because it is a mafia story. Like, if we're throwing the genre tropes in, yep. like, it's the mafia story. It is, and I'm a real, I'm a real bitch about that um, because it's mafia with a capital M. Um, and if you know Jalen Autumn at all, she's one of my buddies, and we were chatting about how much it pisses us off when people refer to the mafia with a capital M, and it's not the Italian or Sicilian versions, um, because the only proper capitalization comes with that one. We're <laughs> 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 too cerebral, man. <laughs> True story. But I, I joke with my husband that I'm going to write one for every mafia because they're all so different. But he, he thinks that's lame. Um, however, it did introduce him to Georgian wine. So, I mean, because the Georgian mafia has a, a story all, all storyboarded out, but I'm just too lazy. Okay. Offline, off, off, off mic, we're going to talk about this because I'm actually, I've just <laughs> discovered Georgian wine for a story that I'm writing in my other life as a journalist. Uh, you know, talking we where I live, we there's a distributor here of Georgian wine, and she's the only distributor of Georgian wine. Oh my god! And it's like the original. Like everybody thinks the French have the sort of cornered the market on wine, but actually, wine began in the Georgian region, and it's been overlooked and and because of wars and blah blah. Like there's a wild history to Georgian. Okay, I'm wine. coming over because I have to drive to New Jersey just to pick up this like wine vineyard of Georgian wine which we love. It's like, it's the perfect accompaniment for appetizer night. It's a little sweet, a little dry, like it's perfect. So, oh my God, you have a distributor. I'm jealous. I'm going to be driving over. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. So, <laughs> so this is really fascinating that you're like, oh God, it's like we were meant to have this conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Cause mafia is like super hot right now, just in terms of genres. And I've always been, and this is like the Italian girl in me going, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to write mafia. And then I'm, and then like, I'm starting, I find myself starting to cave. <laughs> well, um, I think there's something to be said about, the hot bad boy. Now, fair disclosure, if you look up, so back before I was a librarian, I, I debated for a second um, wanting to work for the FBI. And oh, I'm not okay. as a librarian, fun fact, but I did look into like the OCTF and all of that. And I was really excited about it because as a kid, I fell in love with The Godfather because my dad made me watch it. 
And I thought this will be great because I grew up in the heyday of when the mob was really the five families were doing their thing in New York and the yeah. FBI was just finally getting them. Uh, I thought this would be awesome. They're not as hot as um, as we like to think they are. Like, I mean, that's really one in a million shot of like the real hot guy. Um, definitely not the ones here. For no offense to any of the ones in prison who may love your podcast, but just not hot. <laughs> just just not not doing it for me. So I think the uh, the Giovannis of the world are few and far between. Um, and my husband's joke is, he's like, what the hell's with these 25 year old guys who own an empire? They do not. There, there's Unless you're actually in Italy right now, and basically all these older guys are in prison or dead, and there are 16 and 17 year old mafiosos, which is just sad to think about. Um, you are not 25 and running daddy's empire. Like that's yeah. not the way this works. You might be 65 and running daddy's empire, but, um, so he, he has a real issue with, uh, with the really young, young guys. He's like, they don't have any life. There's no experience. Blah, blah, blah. So, um, <laughs> I did my best by making Giovanni 38. I'm like, that's, that's gotta be close enough. And his dad's still in the picture. So see, he's not really running the show. He's, he's just like mostly had of the mob. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like a combo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what at what point at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a writer because obviously you love books if you're a librarian um so I've been writing literally since I can hold a pen or a pencil I remember as a kid for Christmas we we were relatively poor but my parents did their best to make Christmas like the thing and I remember my favorite gift every year I got the same thing was this ream of paper like the big box full of notebook loose leaf and pencils Oh, neat. And I just, like, I remember in second or third grade, listen, we were in a portable classroom both years, and I can't quite remember the orientation, writing my first story, like, legit pages and everything, and the assignment was write a story and illustrate it. Well, I can't draw for shit. So there's, like, sick people and then just pages of words. And the teacher's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then in middle school, I actually got suspended because um, for th there were several things that happened. But one of them was in addition to me telling the the person in the the administrator in question that he couldn't go through my purse because that violated my illegal search and seizure protections. Um, I also wrote some poetry he didn't appreciate, and so he called my mom and told her that I was suicidal and needed to be put in an institution. <laughs> Oh my God. Shame the man's retired because I would really love to send him some work and be like, not only was I never institutionalized, but I make my living this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it just, it was always this thing, but I loved books and the idea of you've got to do something that pays your rent, but don't ever let go of the things that move you and, and drive you to keep going. So I, um, I became a librarian and I started writing a lot of nonfiction because it was very, I don't want to say needed, but it was appreciated in the field if you were writing on things. So I did that and it was, it fulfilled that need to write, yeah. but it never really captured me, I guess. Like the, the idea of letting the people in your head out um, doesn't really happen in, in nonfiction, but I love the research aspects. Yeah. So I was, I did a lot on, um, on librarianship and then I moved into comparative religion and yoga because I was teaching yoga at the time. 
And I really loved that because it was a lot more of trying to figure out why people think and believe the way that they do. Right. Um, and then I started having kids and there's not a whole lot to do once, uh, once you've got little people and nobody's sleeping. Um, and so I'm talking to my best friend one day and we would always go up for my birthday and I'd been bitching and moaning about when I was a librarian, some of these books that just circulated so heavily and I'm like, it's trash. It's not real. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you're just jealous. Cause you couldn't write one of those. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, game on, bitch. Um, <laughs> the gauntlet thrown. For fun and completely as a joke, um, I wrote Amnesty of the Heart. And it was basically every trope I could, like every 1980s romance novel that I could possibly pull in, I wanted to do that for this one book. And it cracked me up. And then I'm like, oh, it's actually not bad. And someone bought it. Like a, a publisher, she's like, well, writing is only step one. You got to actually send it to someone. And I'm like, eh, whatever. And this small publishing house bought it. And I'm like, shit, this, this is crazy. But um, so, and I, shocker, it was the Greek shipping tycoon. Because apparently, contrary to my husband's comments, all Greek men must be, sh you know, shipping tycoons. And the Irish journalist, I don't know where I got those backgrounds at all. That is amazing. And, uh, and yeah, it was so much fun. It's actually an eight book series of which I've only published two and the third one's almost done. It takes years for me to be able to sit and laugh myself through these. But they're like what your grandma would like to read. They're like the silhouettes of the 80s. Oh my God. I have, okay. I have to pick one. I have to pick that up because that's hilarious. Cause I love, well, you know, cause you know, I just remember all of those eighties from like Jackie Collins, Danielle Steele, I guess, I don't know if they're seventies or eighties at this point, it all kind of like molded into one. And then even going like a step further than that, like daytime soaps back then were so big. And I just remember there was always general hospital was the thing it was on right after school, go run home. Yes, I watched it after school. <laughs> <laughs> right home, put on put on general Hall. Phil Donahue came on right after or it was Oprah depending on the year and 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 it was and they had you know the Cassidines were the Greek shipping magnets right and they were also the bad they were also evil but sexy. I, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah I mean it really screwed your head up I mean I grew so the first romance novel I ever read was I was sick and I had chicken pox and the neighbor who is this older woman God love her sent over books for me because my, you know, latchkey kids, my mom was like, you're, you're fine. You're breathing. I'll come back and check on you in a few hours. And she's like, Oh, the neighbor sent over some books for you. And it was this big box. And it was all like these like cheesy romance novels. Nice. <laughs> so like a kid to read. And the first one I read was, it was, I still remember it. It was lion of the desert. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Tell me more. <laughs> it was like this, this little Thin ass silhouette novel that was um, about a sheik. <laughs> so immediately in my in my little kid head, all Arabic men must be these hot rich sheiks. And um, what did he do? Oh, he was saving some oil tycoon's daughter because she'd been kidnapped. And of course, they fall in love, and you know it, yeah. it ends as. But I'm like, wow. And you read it in like an hour and a half because they're literally like, you know, the, the, yeah. 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 So she sent me like a dozen of those and then a couple of Sidney Sheldon books who to this day, I love reading. He actually, love um, 
the the whole like I dream of genie thing like and he was brilliant when it came to to actually writing for a mass market but his books are so underappreciated I agree completely I've Angels remains my favorite book and and, and TV what, movie what is the one? Oh God why can't I remember the name of it it's the one uh, Michael Moretti is the <gasps> it's the it's the bad guy uh fate is it the, um <laughs> Gilbert do the the made for TV movie Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is why it's so awesome to have your cell phone. I I need to know. We might have to um, Google this. They think this is it's going to put librarians out of work. I'm that patron now who's like, it was a white book, and uh, I had some blue writing on it. Um, but I remember that there was the 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 guy who's going to be president and the lawyer was 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 that? It? I think it was Rage of Angels. Was the yeah, it was Michael Moretti, yeah. and he was the mafia yeah. boss. Yeah, 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 yeah. Loved that one so much. I know, me too. That, and then the the what is it? The something has two faces. There was one. It, he actually wrote two of them because he wasn't big on sequels. But he wrote one, and it took place in like the forties, and then he revisited it like a little later in a book. I just loved him so much. I think I read. Was it Nothing Lasts Forever? I think I read that one. Anyway, he's. I yeah, he's. Oh, Bloodline. Was it Bloodline? That was one I hit. And then, I don't know which book it was, but um, Roger Moore narrated one. Shut up. And oh my God. I <laughs> love with him. Like, I'm a Sean Connery all the way for Bond because I watched Roger Moore as the saint, and so it was real hard to get into his Bond movies. But narration, the man's got a gift. And I remember my husband and I were driving, probably to visit my parents, and we were listening to audiobooks that I'd gotten from the library, probably on tape. And we listened to him narrate one. And I'm like, oh my God, I, this has ruined me for all other narrators. That's Until amazing. I met Ito, who narrates Faultline. Okay. And, and he, he and Anna just, I, I absolutely adore them. And, and they have now ruined me for all other narrators. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, check out Roger Moore. He's narrated a couple of stuff, a couple of things. Real good. Well, you know, it's funny talking about all of these old books, like, like you know, 70s, 80s, like consent was sticky in those back then, like in those books, in movies and TV. I, you baby, know, it's cold outside. Baby, it <laughs> is cold outside. Uh, yeah. And there's even when you think about talking about General Hospital, Luke and Laura, that was a weird pairing considering the original non-consent pair. Yeah. Um, and I, and this is something that I think, you know, you touched on, or you talked about in your workshops and, you know, because you are talking about relationships, like kink driven relationships. Right. And, and what that means in particular as a writer, like what can you do and what can you definitely not do to not only get the relationship and, you know, right, like just, you know, factually correct about what happens in a BDSM relationship. But also, I mean, I think the safety part of it, right, is that this might be somebody's first introduction to it. And you don't want to give them information that's going to make it seem like there's a lot like lack of consent is okay or being put in some sort of like physical danger is okay. You know, like, and I think that this is something that especially as more and more graphic books become mainstreamed 
it's something that I think as writers, we really need to grapple with and we need to have that education. Um, so I, first of all, like, that's where I was like, oh my God, she's so brilliant. <laughs> In these workshops. It was <laughs> but, all the Starbucks. It was, it was the Starbucks, yeah. <laughs> but but the, there was, you know, and the way that you were able to distill it so that it was very clear and approachable and definitely filled with humor, which was, which made it fun. But, but these are, these are like serious conversations because there is an empowerment aspect to writing this sort of romance and reading this sort of romance and also, you know, and also participating in that sort of, in that sort of play. Um, but we don't talk about the personal <laughs> personal preferences because that's your personal preferences, but I'm just sort of saying, and there, I don't know, there's just a whole, and there's also fields of study out there that, you know, how, how, how to work through trauma using kink in your relationship and how that moves you through a traumatic experience. And even, you know, and even I'm slowly coming to it, but the understanding that Dubcon also serves a place there as well, where you work with dubious consent and that can also serve, serve as a, as, as a healing from the trauma. So I don't know. I just feel like these are such big things that sort of either, like we don't really talk about, I think in the romance world as, as writers. And I think that we do, because I do think for a lot of girls, frankly, and younger women are coming to our books as they sort of come of age sexually. And I think that's an important um, an important thing to remember. I, I've been in writer groups or reader groups rather where there's talk of, oh, it took me out of the moment because they were discussing safe words or they were discussing consent or they were doing this. And I think that when we're presenting it as realistic fiction, then that's what's going to happen. You're going to be taken out of the moment. There's not a person who has engaged in kink of any type, but there hasn't been at least one moment or many um, that are real funny in retrospect or really help set the groundwork for things. And without those discussions and without that conversation, you cannot have a, a healthy kink-based relationship. And I think that in writing, because like, as you said, this may be the first time that someone has come to a book and said, ooh, maybe this is what I'm looking for, um, that we kind of have an obligation. Now, that being said, fiction is fiction. Yes, everyone should do their due diligence and go and check out a nonfiction, you know, or, or, or a, a fact-based book or, or, or visit a workshop to, to kind of get the real nuts and bolts of what's going on. But you and I both know that that's not really the case for, for most folks. Now, most of people who are reading Taboo, they're not looking for incest in their real lives. They're not looking to go stalk somebody. They sure right. as fuck don't want to be stalked. You know, there is an element of release and just escapism to books. Right. And that's fine. I've got no shade to toss towards people who want to write or read that um, because we all have our escape mechanisms that we want to use. Um, but I do think that if you are going for a realistic story, then you kind of owe it to your readers. Uh, I think we all saw what happened when there were books that became very popular that didn't necessarily embrace maybe the mainstream ideology that we would have hoped um, and kind of glorified stalking or, um, you know, crossing people's boundaries without getting a clear and definite, here's what I want in my life up front. 
And I know, especially when I talk to younger girls and I, and I have daughters, I have sons. Um, but my, my one daughter is at the, the point where she's, you know, thinking about relationships and things like that. I would not want her to read something like that and think that was normal. Right. You know, there's, there's an escapism. If you want to read it and be like, yeah, if I just, I didn't care and, and this is what it is. But I don't want her reading that and thinking these are man goals. You know, um, I want her to know where where she feels comfortable and that that communication is part of making that safe. Right. You know, BDSM, the, the, one of the primary things is that it's safe. Right. You know, and consent is a part of that. Uh, you talked about working through trauma and a book I wrote a while ago was kind of me putting me on paper because I needed to express the fact that I had used CNC, which is what non-consent used to be called consent, non consented, non-consent. Right. Um, for basically you are talking to your partner up front and saying, I consent to having no consent for this period of time. Um, and unfortunately it used to be perceived as kind of a, a rape fantasy thing, which is not true at all. Um, but I'd been sexually assaulted as a teenager and had never really come to terms and gotten over that. And so we opted to try CNC to help with that. And it made, it, it changed my life being able to go through some of these experiences that I had no control over right. with someone that, that at the end of the day, I had full control, but right. I gave it over to someone else. It was, it was something that was very freeing. And while I don't suggest it or recommend it for everyone, um, it's definitely something that can, can have a place in a safe and healthy relationship. So I think when we're presenting things like that in books, we have to be clear that, the, that there's trust involved, that there's communication involved. The reason you can hand over your, your, your consent is that you know, at the end of the day, this person's not going to harm you. Right, right. I think it's, I think also, you know, talking about CNC or Dubcon, I guess it would they maybe call it that now. I don't even know if they would, um, if that's right. But this idea of even just having a fantasy, particularly, I think, well, I mean, I think particularly with, with women, our, our sexuality has been shamed so much from such a young age where like, when we're little, we're sexualized, but then once we do go through puberty, all of a sudden that sexualization becomes like a taboo, right? And there's a lot of confusing messages and, 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 and I think that women do end up with a lot of shame around things, even if they haven't been sexually assaulted, or obviously if they have been sexually assaulted, there can be a lot of shame around that. And so sometimes have, having like, even just having a fantasy, an active fantasy life, and you're sort of thinking about, you know, either something dub Connie or, you know, or having a rape fantasy or something like that. And then you start putting like building shame around that. And the fact of the matter is there should not be shame because this is how you're working through things. Like this is how you are able to sort of like regain, as you said, regain this control that you lost because of this particular situation. And I think that that's something that I don't know, like, as I, I think that's something we obviously don't talk enough about, but, I, and I also think that it's, you know, it's important for our sexual health, our mental health, like, you know, just our, our, our physical and mental wellness. So, you know, fantasies are okay. Oh yeah, totally. And I mean, no, as long as we, as long as legitimately there's consent involved, right. Um, you know, in the real world, I, I think that's really important. And if your fantasy is non-consent, Go for it. Go for you know, it. have fun as long as you're being safe. Right. Um, 
you know, and I think that unfortunately, it's really easy for people masquerading as dominance to be narcissists who really could care less about your safety. So it's important, I think, when we are presenting them in fiction, that we call out the things that are red flags. Right. And we, everyone doesn't need redemption. You know, if you don't want to redeem the bad guy, that's fine because bad guys are sexy. We probably all have had the bad guy in our life that we tried to redeem. Um, but you have to still, like, you want your readers to walk away knowing what they're getting. Right. You know, if he's redeemed, great. If he's an actual dominant, great. Is he, if he's a crazy stalker, great. But know what you're getting. You know, know right. what the package is holding underneath it. So do all of your books have play, play in the BDSM world? Or is it just fault line? Or is it just a select few? No, they all, the, I, I'm a Gemini and I, I honestly have like so many personalities. I don't know what's going on. Um, no, I, so I've got the sweethearty 1980s stuff. And then um, I have a book that's DS. So it doesn't really play with the, the bondage and the, the, the sex play. It's, it's way more of a dom sub. Okay. Um, like, so more of a, a mental play than it is anything else. Um. And then uh, there's a speculative, oh which is like religious tinged. Um, I don't have any sci-fi or fantasy. Not yet. Uh, not yet. <laughs> you know, funny enough, I don't read it either. So, but I, I don't read a lot of romance. I'm real big into poetry books. I love poetry. Um, don't have any of those. Uh, and then I've got dystopian and uh, and this one, this this BDSM mafia. That's wild. Um, That's really wild. Okay, so why did you decide to write then a BDS? Because you are writing all over the place. Uh, you know, that was the voice that was in the that 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 was loudest. It, it, it sounds really crazy, but it was he was the one that was talking the loudest, so he got his shot. Yeah, and he's actually, yeah, he's a great dom, right? Like he really is. Yeah, and he, I would say that he deals a lot with the dubious consent because I think the biggest difference between non-consent and dubious consent is um, non-consent, they're really hoping, in play, they're really hoping that they read you right, but at the end of the day, it's still what they want. And in dubious consent, I think there's a lot of, um, you're not actually saying no, maybe your body is saying no, but, but they're reading you enough to know where that line is so right. that you don't say no. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of mentalist mind game that go that goes into the the consent, and that's really where Giovanni is. He's a, a really good psychological dominant, I think, <laughs> in addition to to really enjoying the physical aspects of dominance. So I was really curious in that the sort of play between Lexi and Giovanni in Fault Line, and how you're crafting this intimate scene when there is this sort of there are these lines that they're testing and, and there is a sense, there is an element of danger in there. Like, how do you, how, how do you ensure that you're not crossing a line? Right. Oh God. I, I, I don't know that there's ever any real way to know you're not because right. I, I had someone who read it and their comments were that they, you know, they felt that there was no clear line and that it was crossed all the time. And um, how could I possibly feel like that was an acceptable representation? Um, and then other people who read it and did not feel that way. Um, I think for me, it becomes trying to put yourself into that person, you know, and to feel what they are feeling. And you know where your own lines are. 
So if you can become this other person and almost method act yourself into them, you know who they are and what they would do and and where their lines would be. And so there's um actually the scene that we were talking about is a uh, there's a, a place where like she's not sure where her line is, but she knows where it is. Like the second she hits it, she knows where it right, is. Right. And you know if he were to overstep that because he misread her that's on him that's not on her for being in the situation i think that's one of the most important things about ds is that you know the responsibility on the play is always on the dominant you know right. it's not on the sub to red card it, it's on the dom to know where the line is right. and it's, it, most of the dominants that i know that i have talked to and um they're really upset when they get red carded not because they were told to stop but because damn it they should have known they should have known better is that and i think that comes with time? I, th I mean, I think so. I, I, most of the folks I know have been doing this for a long time. So, right. I mean, at one point we were all beginning. And right. so you're going to make mistakes. And God, even today that you make mistakes. I mean, uh, last, <laughs> last, when was it? Last year, at some point, um, the wolf got a, uh, got a new flogger and he was playing with it. Which, I mean, come on, you don't play with these things. They, they actually might hurt. And he was kind of like flicking his wrist with it. And I was in front of him. And the intent was that he was going to flick it and it was going to hit me. And fine. But he misjudged where I was standing. So when he flicked it, it impacted. But then it wrapped the, the ends of it around. And I had this like mark around my neck. And it hurt like a mofo. Oh my God, this oh totally God. sounds like my husband. With I screamed something like a girl. <laughs> like, like, I screamed like a child on a playground who'd scraped their knee. Like, it was like, ah! I mean, it was, <laughs> I was awful. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I mean, there's nothing sexy about that. Like, it, it's a bad call. Yeah. And I mean, was I an idiot for standing there while he was playing with it? Yep. And was he an idiot for playing with a toy that isn't really a toy? Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, you know, so there's some things that even age can't help. And then there are, you know, there's always going to be the stuff that happens that you cannot plan for. Um, you know, I, everyone I know, Viv, will laugh because she and I had this discussion on a chat once. Um, the missing butt plug where, I mean, it's not like you've not used these things before. And then all of a sudden that fucker's missing and you're like, shit, I cannot go to the ER and be like, so doc, here's the situation. <laughs> you know, this is not something that fits into a game that you're playing. Like, you now need your partner's legit help to find the, the missing acrimon because you don't want to go to the hospital with that in there. Um, you know, these are things that might not necessarily get put in the books, but they're going to happen in real life. And whether right. you've been doing it two years or 20 years, they're still going to happen. I mean. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, there's an element, honestly, to like, sometimes when I hear things like that, I'm like, oh, thank God. It's not just, yeah, <laughs> like, you're just like, oh, it's not just me. Okay. <laughs> like, I remember listening to a rope guy and he was, um, he was talking about how he had learned how to, to tie up and he does these beautiful knots. I mean, absolutely beautiful. And he told the story of how he was so proud and he was taking pictures and he had inadvertently cut the circulation off. 
in the rope bunny's hands. Like she couldn't feel anything and she didn't want to interrupt him because he was taking pictures. And finally she was like, dude, I can't feel my hands. I mean, you know, this is stuff that happens yeah. even when you've been doing this a while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm sorry, but when you have, like, if you, when you're having sex, you might fart. It happens, like, right? Like, I mean, it's just like, yep. it's or the queefing. I mean, like, like <laughs> if air gets in there, dude, it's got to come out. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's just like it's, when you got a paddle, sometimes that fucker goes a little too low and you're like, the hell, dude, really? <laughs> like, you know, it's going to take you right out of the scene, but it happened. Would you write that? Or do you know too much? <laughs> right? I mean, right? Because there, there is that. Like, we're, we're writing a fantasy and we want. But at the same time, sometimes I'm like, you know what? I really kind of like it when it breaks and you're like, oh, you know, I just, oh, you, we just fell off the bed. Or because oh, yeah. th- this stuff happens, right? Like, this shit happens. And I do think. My like, husband broke a cell phone on my ass. I mean, we <laughs> learned right away that you don't think with the cell phones. I mean, this is not appropriate use. Now we got to buy a new one. Um, you, you know, I, I often go back and forth. I think it'd be funny to write like the middle-aged couple that have been doing this for 25 years and so, like, yes. what they do in their life. And then they're like, oh shit, the kids walked into the kitchen while we were in the middle banging, get your pants up, you know? <laughs> like, um, but then I'm like, if I read that, I'd be so mortified. And one day my kids would read it and they'd be like, oh my God, I remember this. I need counseling. <laughs> that memory has been taken from me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that the dynamic changes when you have a family, it changes when you get comfortable. And like you said, you know, sometimes you're in the middle of doing the deed and something biological happens and you're like, oops, or sometimes you're in the middle of a great screw and you come and you don't mean to, and everything stops. You know, these aren't the things that stop the romance. They're the real part. Yeah. You know, and we've all been there, but I think on some level, unless it's rom-com, no one's reading the the BDSM fantasy to get the real stuff. You know, they don't yeah. they don't necessarily want to know that there's lube on the counter or that, you know, you had to bandage up your nipple because the nipple clamp was too tight and you cut into the skin and now you need to run out to the store for lanolin. I mean, not that that's a true story or anything. Um <laughs> I mean, people don't want that in their fantasy, but it's all true and it all happens. And I also, but I mean, I guess what I'm sort of struggling with too about like, do you put it in? Do you not put it in those? But those, those, those moments are also the moments that actually I think draw the couples together in a more intimate way, right? Is when you actually have those mishaps and you have to like sit there and laugh at this thing that happened or like the butt plug. Do we really want to go to the hospital for this? Or like, you know, what if you can't find it? And then you like, oh, oh, sweetheart, you're going to the hospital with me. I'm not going to have this conversation alone. You know, <laughs> or, sweetheart, you're going to find it. Go get the flashlight. I don't really care. I'm not going to the hospital. <laughs> We found it. Just, you know, spoiler alert, we found it. It was located. And to this day, we still laugh about it. But, I mean, it was not funny in the moment. It's definitely not funny in the moment. <laughs> those, those things should come with some sort of warning. I actually looked into, like, a whole different style after that because I'm like, I, I'm just, I don't want to deal with this anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, okay. I want to get into, uh, into reading from the scene because it is so good and there's so much going on. So, um, so let's segue. Um, could you set up where we are? Um, we're going to start with Lexi, who Lexi is not her real name. No, uh, wait, Lexi is her real name. 
But Giovanni knows her as Alessandra, correct? Yeah. So her name is Alessandra, but Lexi is her nickname that she goes by. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm forgetting now if, if, because he calls her Alessandra and I wasn't sure if she just gave him a fake name because she's undercover. I mean, like she's so essentially it's, it's her name. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't like the nickname. It reminds him of like a kid. So he, he refuses to use the nickname, but that's what other people call her. Got it. Um, and it's how she introduces herself. And it's kind of from a spike aspect. It's also meant to kind of denote who she is because her, you know, her life kind of stopped when she was 22, her dad was killed and she was not really able to move on and process that. And so you have two people, because once you get into his life, you see he's had these defining moments as well. It's two people that deal with trauma in very different ways that for her, it stunts her growth. But for him, he grows up way too fast. Right. And how do these things play out in their lives as they get older? So, you know, she very much identifies with this Lexi person, this, you know, young early twenties, late teens, my life stopped, even though she's 32 years old and really should be making some better choices, but doesn't necessarily always forward think and doesn't always see the forest for the trees. Whereas Giovanni, when he, you you find out later that when he was 15, something really, you know, traumatic happens to him. And instead of becoming that child, he now has to be this man. He has to forward think. He has to think everybody's place three in advance. But what does that do to a man? Like at, when you can no longer see just in a spontaneous sense, but every single person you come into contact with for your own safety as a defense mechanism, you are reading. You know, it makes you an outstanding mafioso, probably not so outstanding of a whole legit person. Right. Um, so together they're like a normal person, but. <laughs> Apart, they are really, really abnormal people. Um, so, do you? I'm, I'm very. I'm actually kind of curious in a, in a craft way. Like, how do you? Are you a plotter? How do you draw out these sort? No, you're not. You're your pants all the way. Yeah, I. Um, they live in my head, and we have a lot of conversations. But I don't really sit and draft people or stories. And um, it's really interesting. The the scene that changed Giovanni. I knew something, but I didn't know what it was until after the book was fully done. And then I was just sitting there and all of a sudden I I was like meditating and in my head, this very vivid expression of what it was happened. And the chapter that that is put in was completely written on the fly after the book was done because it suddenly explained him. So up until then it was just something, but then you get this definition of what that something is. It's funny. I, I work pretty very much the same way because I can't, I feel like I haven't, I, I don't, I need to write them and spend time with them before I can really figure out what it is that that's, that's underneath everything, you know, and I have some, and I'll, I'll have ideas when I start and I'll have a lot of backstory written, but then that backstory is going to change and the situations are going to change. And, you know, and it's, it's a, it can be a very frustrating way to write, but it's just the way that works for me. It's like finding a new friend, you right. know, that when you, when you meet like there, you've got the things that you have in common or those things that are on the outside. But then you, when you really sit down over coffee and you're getting to know the person, that's when all the, the juicy bits come out. And I feel like that's character profiling for me that, you know, in the beginning, I kind of can close my eyes and see them and I know who they are, but I don't really know them until we spend a little bit of time together. And then they, it's all I can think about. Like they are the voices in my head and, and I cannot get rid of them until they're on paper. 
So here we are in this scene in Lexi's point of view, and this is the, their first intimate moment together, correct? Or did they have one before this? No. So they, in, in a previous chapter, they sleep together and, you know, it's, it's great. Um, Cause it's romance and it's, it's gotta be great. Um, but so where this scene leads us is um, he has taken her home to meet his family and they're they're now back and they have like this really this heart to heart in the car because she's like look dude it's just not going to work and at this point she knows who she's supposed to be and she knows that she is not that person with him and she just needs to bail and walk away but he gives her this real heartfelt like come back with me because of who I'm showing you kind of thing. And it's just, this great, really, I kind of see it, you know, in the back of the car with the music playing and it's, it's real nice and lovely and romantic. So she's like, sure, okay. She comes up with him. And then um, he's on edge, but he, he knows that, um, although I'm getting ahead because you're in his person, in his point of view, you know, he knows that he has to work out his frustration and he can't be with her. Um, but uh, he has to leave her for a little bit and, so she is um, just like hanging out and checking out his house and things. And, um, and then they get into an altercation um, because he sees some bruises on her, bruises that he left, but that he's really pissed off about because he, he wasn't in control when he left them. And this really bothers him. And so they separate again and she ultimately ends up in bed asleep alone. And then he wakes her up. Uh, as he's moving her from like a, a chaise into the actual bed. And she notices on his hands that um, there's broken skin, that it's clear he was, he was hitting somebody or something. And she asks him about it and he won't tell her. Okay. And so this really, of course, doesn't end well. Right. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Get ready. Lexi felt sick. She knew exactly what had transpired. Who did you hit because you wouldn't hit me? When Giovanni didn't answer, she also knew that she was right. Who? Did you go to one of the clubs you own for some interviewing too? Make sure to cover all your bases. The growl replaced the gentleness. Don't, Alessandra. Lexi pulled away from him and stumbled off the other side of the bed. Why the fuck not, Giovanni? Afraid you won't be able to stop? Why did the idea of another woman make her so angry, so hurt? She had forgotten, that was why. Giovanni had made her forget that this was just an assignment and that there was no reason for her to give a damn. He had convinced her to see him and Lexi had decided to ignore everything she knew. Being here in this position, again, was her fault. Caring about him and letting him hurt her was her penance for her stupid heart. Let him fuck and beat the hell out of every woman this side of New Jersey. She didn't care. I really loved this moment because I felt like you're almost disregarding that unwritten rule in romance of no cheating and in a way he's kind of doing that and but like whatever is happening here is in service to the story and so and and that's where because I don't know if whatever he was doing was cheating in the he had sex with somebody else since but it was clearly he needed to get out some something that that he then that he can't quite do with her yet right and so I guess in the romance world does that count as a cheat I don't like I don't know I feel like in my head I'd be like oh you cheated on me um, <laughs> well that's I mean clearly she's hey, so in the in the beginning the whole throwback to the interviewing 
is that, yes. you know, how he interviews these girls is, you know, yeah. in his special way at work. Um, you know, so this, this is where her mind goes, is that yes. I've been alone for hours. What were you doing? Were you having sex with somebody else? And, you know, right. you know, and, or having the intimacy of, you know, some sort of BDSM play as well, because that's intimate too. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I just felt like there was like, like, again, that sort of where we talked about, there's a line, right. And, and you were just kind of dancing on it. And I was like, oh man, that's ballsy. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know what happens yet. Cause you haven't gotten there. So you don't know what you're doing yet. <laughs> Because I wrote this one thing and it was just like this little tiny thing and there was nothing going on between the main character and this groupie that I threw that, that was in the first book. And oh my God, I got reamed. There was cheating in this book. I'm like, there was, no, there was no cheating. He didn't like, <laughs> he didn't have sex with her. It was just, a, it was like, you know, you assume they're going to have sex, but that actually never happened. And so like, that doesn't count. That wasn't cheating. He was just being like uh, a groupie on tour. Like what? Anyway, I was like, hmm, what's she doing here? I-, <laughs> I was just like, that's ballsy. I love it. Okay. So we're going to really get into it. This is a long one. So buckle in. She shoved her body against him to create space, but he only laughed as he tossed her back on the bed. When she pushed up in an attempt to get to the other side, he used his knee on her. He used his knee on her lower back to push her down and curled his hand into her hair, forcing her head against the mattress. Lexi felt the expensive leather trace the curve of her skin and closed her eyes. Her tears saturated the sheets below as she prepared herself for the blow. Do it, she whispered. She heard him shudder when she truly consented to his game. Giovanni pulled her hair tighter and his knee weighed her while he balanced on the leg he kept off the bed. She could feel the belt still in his hands when he ripped the thong to shreds, the sides cutting into her hips as they tore at the seams. Seconds later, the soft leather bit into her ass as it cut into her bare skin and she gulped in air. Lexi didn't know what she had expected, but it wasn't that. The impact initially was soft to the touch before a millisecond later, every nerve ending was on fire. Her brain lit up across the board. She was unable to scream, having barely been able to breathe before the second hit, harder than the first, lay its marks across her backside. Enough? Giovanni's voice was harsh and barely registered. Lexi was struggling to cope and clenched her eyes tightly as her fingers threatened to tear holes in the sheets. A third drop of the belt slapped her, whether it was because her ass was already raw or because his wolf was finally being stilled. This one felt even harder, and she managed to choke out a sob between her rapid inhales and exhales. Lexi didn't know how to say that she was done. There weren't words in her vocabulary to tell him that she couldn't take any more. The monsters in her head were quieted and her body couldn't withstand another blow without shattering the silence into the lack of trust she feared was waiting on the other side. When she heard the belt hit the floor and felt the knee come off her back while the hand in her hair loosened, Lexi knew that Giovanni understood without her saying anything. She panted with relief and pulled herself, in, pulled herself to her knees with the intent of crawling to the other side of the bed. Before Lexi could move away, his hand returned to her, grasping her shoulder and positioning her body in front of him. 
Giovanni was inside of her seconds later, roughly claiming the body that he already owned. He tore the thin baby doll from her and left it hanging at her wrists, using the same hand to grab one breast and pinch the nipple so hard that she cried out. She was dripping wet for him and he was thick from the need to possess her. She couldn't help but respond to his deep thrusts by moving her body back against him, flooding her with sensations of pain and pleasure, fear and desire. There was no rational thought process. Had there been, her brain would have probably told her to run. Lexi had known from the start that Giovanni's game was one she had no business playing. Yet here she was, encouraging him to fuck her like this, giving him the last remaining position needed to completely break her. Oh my God. Oh my God. This was, wow. Like the intensity of everything going on between them, I thought was divine and frightening all at once. There's a real power here in your writing in this moment in particular. Um, I thought it was really incredible to, uh, to, to read and just like I, was like, I was like, how does she get there as a writer? Like that was sort of like the intensity of that moment was absolutely gorgeous. Well, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, do you have it like all in one go? Like you're like, or, or does this take you time to really get there? No, the scenes all come at once. Like that, like it's it's a it's a sit and do it. I actually am really terrible about stopping and starting. Um, I have a son who has autism, and he has to finish what he starts. And there's a part of me that really understands that part better right. than I understand the rest of it because that's me. I I can't start and stop. And I'm that person who's like five more minutes, five more minutes. Like <laughs> it's nine o'clock already. It's time to be done. Yeah, I can't. I'm sorry, you're just gonna have to go deal with it. I'll I'll be out in five minutes. And then an hour later, I'm like, I'm done. So, so then you just kind of like wrote that all in one go. Yeah. Like you don't go back and like redo, rework, layer back in. Like you're like, this is it. Yeah. I mean, I I go back for like corrections with grammar or language or things like that. But the scene is what the scene is. Um, The interesting thing in this one, because up until this point, everything I wrote was pretty back and forth between characters where you saw one scene told by two people maybe, but if one person told it, you didn't see the other person's perspective on that specific part. Something that was very interesting with this one is that her story was told all at once. And then when I started his, not only were you seeing what he was doing when he wasn't with her, but there are a few scenes, this one among them, that are repeated, but you see his point of view. And not having the benefit of being able to go back except to make sure the dialogue matched up where needed. And in his story, you get more dialogue um, typically. So whereas she may say a sentence in hers, you might get five sentences in his because it's supposed to be the final telling of this one scene and give you things you didn't necessarily have before. Um, Because in hers, she's remembering the things or her character is telling the things that were important to her. Whereas in his, that same scene, he's going to show you things that were important to him. And just as in real life, you and I would have completely different tellings of a scene that we both lived through. Because what you took away is going to be way more important to you than it might have been to me. So I I feel like I might know the answer to this question, but instead of doing that sort of like alternating point of view that I think we're used to and actually writing her point of view, big chunk and moving on almost like two separate books, right? I mean, that's essentially what they are. 
did you set out to do that? Was this a conscious thing or this is just how it presents the story presented itself? No, I actually thought that I would start writing hers and then he would start talking and I'd get some benefit of him. And that's not how it rolled at all. Like he started the talking in my head. And then when it was like, all right, let's get it started. It was her voice and it was only her voice. And so there was no, like, I was living it with her. I hated his guts too when I got to 16 because I'm like, how the fuck can this guy ever redeem himself? Like, he's an awful human being. What is wrong with me that this guy is in my head? Um, and then I expected at the end of 16 that I would keep hearing what she was going through and it said it stopped. It completely stopped. And all of a sudden she's silent and he's talking. And I'm like, I, what? I don't understand. Oh my God. Um, and then I got his benefit. And then as I'm sitting there, and living his life, it's like, holy shit, like, this is why X happened. Oh, this is what he was doing while she was doing that. And it was like a completely new story. Um, so other than going back to make sure like when a scene was finished, like, oh, this is exactly how that sentence was worded. I need to make sure that that matches. Um, it was really it was like two completely separate entities. And it did not change until they both get up to that part where for 16 ends for her, when he meets her at that point, then I got this little bit of back and forth between the two of them, which is what you see in the book, because chapters, I think it's 31 and 32 or 32 and 33. Those actually do go back and forth. Okay. And that was kind of how I saw it in my head too, was like back and forth between these characters, but then it went back to her and her book ends. And when hers ended, I'm like, shit, what happened? And when he starts talking, it takes me back a few chapters. I'm like, no, I need to know what happens to her. Like, what happened? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it was a real interesting journey that, that kind of wrote like it reads. Oh, my God. This is amazing. Okay. So um, I'm jumping now down into his point of view in this moment. And so, you know, we're at the point where he comes in sort of at the beginning, you know, where there's like that argument and you know, who, who have you, I don't know, wait, are we there? Yeah, no. So yeah. So we're like kind of right at that same moment where I started. Um, I just thought this was so fascinating. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> he wakes her up at this point. She yawned her words. It's, it's too big. You, you don't want to be there. So why do you think I do? No, she's talking, talking about, about the bed, folks. Yeah, she's not talking, talking about the bed. I need to justify that. Yeah. You said <laughs> the bed is far more comfortable for that. <laughs> it's too big. I just realized I was like, oh, wait, no. <laughs> She took on the attitude of a small child when she was tired. Her lips were pouty and her hair fell around her face like a frame of windswept flowers. In the light of the bedside lamp, he could see freckles across the bridge of her nose that he had somehow missed before. Okay, this is, this is where I stopped. I was like, okay, the juxtaposition between these point of views, this is where I was like, holy shit. He, again, like we, I mentioned, like he looked like such a monster before, like fire and rage and all that. And the way he sees her, he's so soft. And the way he sees her is so beautiful. And it just kind of like completely turned the character around for me. Um, just sort of like go into his head right here and, and spend, you know, because even though I'm not as far along, I, you know, I'm into the book a bit and I'm sort of like, I, I'm still kind of wondering how the hell they're going to get together. And is this a real, is she really going to pair these two? God, he's such a jackass. What is she thinking? <laughs> you know, I, like, like I'm there, like, that's where I am right now with this book. And, but then I got skipping ahead to get here. I was like, oh, I'm in love with him. Right. Like you get, 
you got to forget it when you get back. Forget it. Forget the love. So I just was like, oh, that's really kind of cool that you're now it's sort of like now it's starting. I'm starting to have this kind of understanding of like why. Um, All right. So I'm going to jump down to a little bit. In that moment, everything shifted with her consent. The entire playbook changed. It was impossible that Alessandra didn't know what she was asking him to do. She had seen snippets of who he was. She knew the control and his lack thereof went where she was concerned. She knew what drove him to the point that Giovanni had beaten someone in her stead. She knew how he spent his time and the types of women he used. He was an open book and still she had invited him to let his aggression loose on her. Did Alessandra understand that there would be no stopping? That once she gave him her word, it would be completely on him to read her and know at what stage she reached her breaking point? Giovanni's whole world was at risk. The volcano had finally erupted. And now, as the lava began to spill out, he had to climb without burning himself and without destroying the fragile rocks that kept the mountain upright. Oh, so beautiful. Um, I, in a lot of like the the... I'm trying to sort of read what the hell I'm saying here in my notes. <laughs> um, in the good BDSM books that I read, like the good ones, um, I actually love that we're able to see the damage in the men. I, I honestly think that that's part of the reason why I enjoy reading the good ones so much is because we don't see the damage. And I mean, deep damage in men in just regular romance that we do in BDSM. And I think that that's really striking. And I think that, you know, as much as we kind of like, we, I think, I think in society, we gloss that over, like our, our men are damaged and that is part of the issue. You know, if we're going to talk about feminism or we're going to talk about like whatever it is we we can't do that and not have a conversation about how our men are damaged well, I think you're absolutely right I mean all people are damaged we all are the you know kind of the the substance of what the damage is left behind and the scars and the way that we've healed sometimes the bones are set sometimes they're not and this creates the people that we are and I think women are in as much as we are overly sexualized and are um, downgraded in a lot of ways. I think that there is a perception that seeing that damage is on some level acceptable. It's okay to cry. Like, oh, she wants to cry on your shoulder or go and support her. Or we don't see the crying as strength. We don't see it as the body's way to release the pain so that we can stand and fight another day. We see it as weakness and men aren't weak. So men aren't allowed to cry, you know? We, we don't want them to show that. We don't want them to whine. We expect them to be, you know, tough and able to take it. And I think one of the things that's very refreshing about BDSM as a lifestyle is that it's open and honest. And part of what it is based on um, is this understanding between the two people that apart, we are broken, but together those broken parts fit, you know, they mesh, you know, that the parts of me that that can't stand on their own are supported by you and the parts of you that can't stand are supported by me. And together we make that wholeness. Right. Um, and, and I, I do, I, I love that 
I think typically in romance novels, we see the men as needing to be redeemed, but we're not really exposed to the brokenness inside. We're exposed to however they're exporting it. You know, that maybe he's a womanizer or he's a jerk or whatever, but we're not trying to fix the person within. We just want him to export himself as something that's easier to read. And that, that makes him more of the hero that we just knew he was. Um, And we take the fragility of the woman's character and, you know, that's seen as the way that it, it transforms the man into his redemption. But I, I, I don't think that's true in real life. And, and for me, when I read something that presents itself as real, I'm, I find myself poking holes in all the ways that it, it disregards what's going on in our brain. And I mean, our brain's the most sexual part of us. So especially in romance novels, if I can't see the person as real, I can't put myself there and I can't want that person to be my other person either. So um, yeah, I I do. I I really like in a lot of the the current BDSM fiction that's out there. It's not just a guy who's doing a thing. It's a guy who's a whole character. He's a whole person. And you get to see that, that brokenness and that fragility in him as well, even if he doesn't always see it up front. Right, exactly. Um, I just want to just quickly read through, because I know like we are, I've kept you so late. <laughs> Do you have anywhere to go? <laughs> I, I, I am yours for the taking. Okay. <laughs> his knee was in her lower back, immobilizing her. He ran his hand down her hair as she turned her head to the side, her eyes tightly closed. She was breathless do it. The belt moved up her leg and he felt her tremble with anticipation. I need you to. I need you to. It didn't matter. He had a file identifying her as a federal agent. It didn't matter that she had tried to lie to him. It didn't matter that she had the power to betray him. All that mattered was that Alessandra trusted him. She was his and in those words was telling him everything he needed to hear. Giovanni sighed her name as his fingers twisted in her hair do it. She whispered again. That was sort of great because it was like, I didn't know that he knew at that point that she was. I know. I just realized when you read it, I'm like, damn it. (laughs) I know. I didn't know that she, and I was like, Oh, you need to forget. Otherwise it's not going to work. You got to forget. (laughs) (laughs) What I think would would never allow the book to work as that back and forth is the reader isn't supposed to know when he finds out who she is until she finds out that he knows who she is. Who she is. Okay. Um, All right. And so you got to forget that he knows this early in. Okay. Cause I, but I mean, it was, look, I am the person and I'm loathed for this. I will read the last page. (gasps) Scandal. I know. I know. (laughs) Scandal. I will tell, I flip to the end of the book and I read, I do. And it's terrible, but, um, but yes. Um, so I'm fine with that spoiler, but everybody else, spoiler alert. <laughs> I, I like to read what's going on in TV series before I've seen the actual part. Cause I need to know a, if they broke away from the book and b how much my heart has to take before yes. I get to the episode. So I feel, yeah, I always, I'm always reading the end first. I'm like, I know it's, <laughs> I know, but I just, I do. So don't, I'm not the, I'm not the one to spoil it. Cause then there, people give me a spoiler and that'll actually make me more excited to go you know, see the thing. So, so I'm good with spoilers. Um, okay. Da, 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 da. Where, where are we? Um, 
He thought he might further ruin his pants from his earlier boxing match as his erection tried to break through the zipper. After the second hit, Alessandra deeply inhaled and he thought she might, be, she might ask for mercy. Instead, she curled her fingers into the sheets that were beneath her and Giovanni answered her body with a third and final slap that stilled every bit of need to punish her earlier miscalculations. His disciplinary, disciplinarian quieted while his sexual aggression still raged and he dropped the belt to the floor. Alessandra too had managed to, fi to find her needs filled. Her body no longer begged for his correction as her posture unconsciously changed. She dropped her stomach lower, her head bowed into the mattress. When he let her go, she pulled herself to kneeling. In that brief moment, he saw Alessandra fully submissive before him and the desire that overwhelmed him was complete. <sighs> okay, so just one last little bit. His father had been wrong. It wasn't losing Alessandra that was the danger. It was loving her. Oh my God. Giovanni was upended and the world that had existed only a week before was annihilated by Cupid's arrow cracking open a heart that was better left alone. This love was all encompassing. It was torture made bliss. That like kicked me right in yeah. Isn't that like true love though? I mean, isn't love really torture made bliss? I and mean, we, we have this fantasy that love is beautiful and sweet and pretty. And I mean, weddings kind of play on this and the happy ever after and the, the fantasy fairy tale. But I mean, loving someone, really loving them is suffering and torture. I mean, you can't really love someone without that pain. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. Love is exquisite, exquisite torture. This is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that scene, even with the spoilers. <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorites. I'm not usually a fan of like picking out a sex scene as a favorite, but I like the, um, especially reading them next to each other, the, the difference in how they're both approaching the exact same yes. moment. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just, I find it so it's like you're delving into their brains. Yeah. And he also, bit of a shock to me, but in this moment, he actually seems more invested in the relationship than she is when you get into his point of view. And, and, and that to me was sort of the shocker because in her point of view, it was like, I could, eh, is he invested? Is this a kink thing for him? Is she just a lay? Like what, it, you know, is this just a sexual thing? And then you go into his head and you're just like, wow, he really is very, like he's in deep here. And I absolutely loved being able to read that. I mean, like, you know, full dis disclosure, I struggle writing male point of view. So I don't put it into my books. So it's all from the female point of view. Um, and I, I'm trying to actively change that because I do think that I would like to write it write from both and I know the readers like it too but for whatever reason right now it's just not working for me right so I just absolutely loved being able to like get into his head and experience things from where he was coming from in a deeper way like I liked I never I never thought that I would be okay with reading with like kind of rereading a scene um because uh, I feel like, oh, I've already, I've already been there, but I absolutely loved going back and sort of seeing it through his eyes. I thought that it really did add to the story and, um, and a, a really beautiful story. So thank you. You're welcome. Actually, one of my other favorite scenes is, um, I don't know where you are yet, but have they gone to Sicily? No, they have not. Okay. So there's a, there's a scene, a conversation scene 
that um, it's actually part of the audio book. Um, the, it was that these two scenes were the ones we were going back and forth on, on what was going to be the teaser for it. And it's a, a segment of this conversation that they have. And it's another one of those where these two people are living the same moment and they pull away completely different things from it. Um, I, so that, that's actually, if I had to pick one thing that's completely non-sexual, um, it would be that scene between them because you really get to see who they are in these moments um, while they're trying desperately to figure out who the other person is. Right. So cool. So Faultline was just made into an audiobook, right? And mm -hmm. what else do you have coming up? Um, that's a really good question. I, I have things that are supposed to be coming up, but, um, I just can't seem to get myself there. Okay. Uh, so the, the third book in the Aegean Affair series is done. It's an edit, but I'm not doing my part. So, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I will, I will get my shit together. Um, there's also a retelling of um, Persephone and Hades, which Ooh. is so funny because when that one started, that was not a thing. And then I'm like, who, why the hell are people writing Persephone and Hades? Um, which, because now it's a thing. But uh, my husband's Greek and I love studying Greek religion. And mm -hmm. it dawned on me just how different we perceive some of the tellings than necessarily how they were intended. So that's kind of where the gospel of Persephone comes from. It is a a retelling of the story, trying to find its hooks in actual Greek lore versus the stories that we've had passed to us as part of this mythology. Um, and then I've got my Georgian one that's like 60 pages in, but it's wow. disturbing me. So I can't quite, quite get there. Um, and then nonfiction stuff. So I, I do some BDSM nonfiction work. And uh, so I've got a few pieces there and Honestly, as terrible as this may sound, I've got a religious book that um, should be out by the end of the year uh, under a different name. Amazing. <laughs> and that's nonfiction as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And I mean, just really quickly, I did want to point because I thought that this was really cool. Your nonfiction um, around BDSM is you have these love letter prompts, a book of love letter prompts, which I just was like, that's so cool. I love a good love letter. Sexting does not count, by the way. Um, yes, very and I don't think we write them anymore. And I kind of love that you have this, this, this book out there that like prompts people to write love letters. I was like, this is great. <laughs> so my husband and I went to a military school and um, initially we were not allowed to be together, even though we were married. And so we used to write love letters to each other and drop them in. Um, so he would walk by my window at night and I would drop a love letter out the window and then he would reciprocate by shoving one in my mailbox oh. at school. And so I would have these, and I have an entire binder full of love letters. And then um, he leaves me a love note by my coffee maker or he'll shove it, you know, in my bag or something so that I'll find it randomly through the day. And I write him love notes in his lunches that I pack. So um, it's just a way to, to kind of keep, and some of them are dirty. Some of them are like glorified sexting, but some <laughs> of them are really these deep, powerful moments that you don't need to wait for an anniversary or a birthday or some made up holiday to stick them in a, a card. You know, you can cut off a little sheet of paper from your grocery list and write something in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there is a lost art to the love letter. And because our minds are, are such sexual beings, I think there is this, 
distance making the heart grow fonder when you're when you're reading a note. So yeah, so there's a there are two books that are one from the dominant or the the male perspective and one from the female perspective, and then uh, accountability books for for folks exploring DS because that tends to be a real that communication is something that's learned over time and, and tends to be really difficult to get into in the beginning. Mia, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Where can people find you. you on the internet? Like what, where's your favorite place to hang out? Um, so I'm a slacker and I suck at self-promotion. So um, you will find me if I'm there. I do answer, I do always respond though. Um, so I am on Facebook at Mia Michelle Books and Instagram at me and Michelle author and I'm Michelle with one L that's that's legit how my mom spelled it I'm not sure why it is a boy's name I understand um and then uh me and michelle.com so I, and I will you know, there I will have those links in the show notes as well so Mia thank you so much for doing this thanks for having me this was great time told you this interview was one for the books. I love Mia. Both of us are going to be back at the Fall in Love New England conference again this year, which is happening in October just outside the Boston area. If you feel like doing some leaf peeping and hanging out with a bunch of cool ass women, come check us out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just like with books, reviews on podcasts matter and help with visibility. I'd also love it if you give it a five-star rating, just saying. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Grecolina Writes or hit me up on my website, lgreco.rocks. Next time, Evie Alexander is on the steam seat. She is super fun, so keep an eye out for that episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>